0: A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian
1: Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Or should I say welcome to my daily therapy session. Cause I gotta be honest, I do feel a lot better after I get a lot of this stuff off my chest and share it with you. So, hopefully, it gives you something worthwhile. If it does, can I ask a favor? Tell a friend, and and keep in mind this is not for everybody. Not everybody really cares or is looking for, you know, the the truth, at least the hard, you know, unsugarcoated truth. So, yeah, it's uh, it's it's for people who have a pretty pretty high pain threshold. And and are willing to, to see the world as it is, which sometimes can be ugly. And at the same time, are willing to step up and do something about improving the world. Now, usually that means small things that happen right where we happen to be standing. But you know what? That's the essence of leadership. Using your influence wherever you happen to be as wisely as possible. So, with that in mind, let's launch into a little discussion of some of the things going on today. I want to start with an article from Brandon Smith, and I really respect how Brandon Smith writes. I think he's I think he is one of the better thinkers and writers out there. And, uh, you know, this one just grabbed me because, you know, he's acknowledging a truth that I don't think a lot of us really want to say. Oh, yeah, I I agree. That's that's coming right at us. But uh, economically, I think most people would agree uh, things are not as they should be. I mean, the appearance is, well, you know, I can still run to Costco. I can still spend a couple hundred bucks, you know, without much trouble, you know, picking stuff up at the grocery store. We see the cost of things going up. We see that uh, the purchasing power of our dollars is uh, decreasing day by day and month by month. But nothing has changed that much. In other words, we're all still pretty comfortable, well fed. We have warm places to sleep for the most part. You know, um, nothing has really drastically changed in our lives. And yet, I believe those who are saying that we are facing a massive economic correction, like the biggest economic correction that the world has ever seen. In fact, I'm going to put it another way. Some are simply calling it economic collapse. Now, the crazy thing is this kind of thing has happened before. Maybe not to this scale, but it's happened before, and it may very well happen again. Certainly, all the pieces are in place for this to happen. And I don't tell you that so that, okay, there you go, now suck your thumb and hide under your bed and, and, you know, good luck dealing with it. When I speak about these kind of things, I'm doing it from the standpoint of, I believe it's likely coming and I don't know how hard it's going to be, but I really think hard times are on the doorstep and the more you and I can do to mitigate those hard times, in other words, to be self-sufficient, whether that means producing more of your own food, whether that means being out of debt, whether that means just having good, solid family relationships that you can depend on. I think it's in our interest to do this. And I get it. It's an unpopular thing for some people. Even, you know, hardcore preppers are like, oh, Brian, please, (laughs) I've dealt with this enough. Got to step back for a few days and take a little break. I totally get it. But there are people who are still in that early stage of awakening not sure, well, you know, what kind of priority should I put on this? This is the kind of thing I would give a much higher priority. Not because we need to be reacting out of fear or panicking, heaven forbid, but just it, it's coming. There's there's warning signs for people who are paying attention. I trust that you're one of those people who's paying attention. And so I offer this as food for thought. Now, what you do with this information, again, that's up to you. This This is just something that I hope is helpful. So Brandon Smith's article is called Leftists Aren't Capable of Surviving Economic Collapse. And here's why. And I'm going to offer this preface. I don't like to speak in terms of labels and even the left right paradigm to me leaves a lot to be desired. However, I have to concede that generally the the most anti-liberty, anti-human, you know, anti-individual mindsets seem to emanate from the political left. The political right can engage in collectivism as well, but the really hardcore ones who are pushing it, and I mean pushing it as in we got to get there faster and harder and, you know, they're they're going for broke. It's the left. And we'll talk more about that, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, like, I don't know if you saw anything from the White House signing of the uh, Respect for Marriage Act. Holy cow. I mean, I'm I'm thinking Sodom and Gomorrah was like, dude, tone it down. <laughs> you guys are shameless. Anyway, Brandon Smith says there is one factor that constantly stands out as an absolute as absolutely essential to a person's chances at surviving a crisis event. That factor is mindset. Experience and training are highly valuable. Having proper tools and preps on hand are a huge huge advantage. But in the end, without mental toughness and the ability to adapt. The most prepared person in the world will still likely bite the dust. Now he says mental toughness is something that can be taught to a point. That's the entire purpose of basic training methods used in the military. To take mundane details and elevate them in the minds of trainees while wearing them down with physical punishment. The goal is to condition the mind to ignore distraction, to ignore fear and pain while focusing on the task at hand. Failure is not an option in war, just as it's not an option in survival. Those who embrace distraction and embrace failure because they think it will make things easier for them are filtered out of the recruitment pool or out of the gene pool. He says it's no coincidence that the U.S. military today is dealing with some of the worst recruitment conditions they've ever seen in terms of people being physically and mentally incapable of finishing basic training. The Pentagon currently estimates that 77% of young Americans are unfit for recruitment without a waiver for obesity, drug use, and mental health problems. Meaning Generation Z is so unfit, physically and mentally, if there was a major war, almost 80% of them would be erased from existence. Now he says the problem has become so bad that militaries in the U.S. and throughout the West are being forced to lower standards just to meet minimum personnel goals. One can argue that many young people just don't want to join the military anyway, but that's beside the point. Even if they wanted to, they would not be up to the task. Now, there are a number of reasons for this development, but he says, I would suggest that the spread of leftist ideology among 63% of Americans ages 18 to 29, according to polls, has created a survival vacuum. In other words, a generation of mental weaklings. And he says it's important to remember that younger people have adopted more liberal views for decades, but the political left is definitely not liberal today. The leftists of today are full-bore Marxists, both economically and culturally. They support establishment centralization. They support economic centralization. They support corporate centralization. They support authoritarianism and censorship. They support moral relativism. And they applaud the concept of an all-pervasive welfare state. Now, in 1980, you might have been able to find a large number of mentally tough people that considered themselves Democrats, but today, you will not find anyone. With America hovering in a precarious netherworld between stagflationary crisis and deflationary crisis, depending on which poison the Federal Reserve chooses to give the country, the stage has been set for for an economic disaster similar to the Great Depression or worse. In fact, he links to an article he'd written previously that analyzes this very well. But Brandon Smith says in two years or less, our system, which is already dealing with a number of threats, including high prices and supply chain instability, will not remain functional in the manner most people are accustomed. If we accept this inevitability, then he says we must ask a logical question. Who is going to rebuild? Hey, there's a common theme for my listeners. Whoever inherits the mantle will either bring America back to freedom and prosperity or plunge our society into perpetual tyranny. It all depends on who survives the crisis. And he says, one thing that gives me some hope is the fact that leftists as a subgroup of our population are completely incapable of surviving a major economic crisis event. Now, that's not to say that I wish to them all to die. He says, I'm just pointing out the reality that most of them won't make it because they are ill-equipped to handle a calamity. Here are the reasons why a post-collapse world would probably be devoid of common leftists. Number one, he says, leftists thrive on crisis but die out during collapse. Leftists have a tendency to exploit crisis and tragedy, to shore up power and expand their numbers through fear. But there's a problem with this tactic. If the crisis is fabricated, a tempest in a teapot, then they do very well. If the crisis turns into an actual disaster with real-world consequences, including financial decline, supply chain disruptions, shortages and civil unrest, they have no tools to deal with the effects other than mob action and looting. What happens if they use mob action and looting when the rule of law is no longer a factor in a country with millions of guns? Well, the answer is they will die by the tens of thousands as people defend their businesses and homes. The violent hordes we witnessed during the BLM riots would not last long during a collapse scenario where people are more inclined to use deadly force. I know this is a really unpopular thing to point out, but... You know, when it gets to the point where people realize, you know what, the law no longer protects me. It's only being used as a weapon against me. That's where you're going to see people disregard the law. I know, it's an unpleasant thought. I don't want to live in a lawless society either, but guess what? When people weaponize the law and use it as a tool to punish their political opponents, that doesn't engender respect for the law. So it's it's becoming kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. You want to treat me like an outlaw? Well, there comes a point where I have nothing to lose by behaving like an outlaw. All right, still with me? Hang on. We'll come back to this just the other side of these messages.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian
1: Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Got to give a quick uh, shout-out here to Garage Door Pros, located in St. George, Utah, but serving St. George, Cedar City, Mesquite, Colorado City, all of that wonderful corner of color country. If you need installation, service, or repair on garage doors, either commercially or residentially, these are the guys you want to talk to, Garage Door Pros. In fact, I would point you to their their website, which is garagedoorproservices.com. There's a handy link that you'll find in my show notes, not just for them, but for all of my sponsors. Again, that's garage Oh, if you want to check out my show notes, you can do that at the show.com. So I'm sharing this article from Brandon Smith. This is from alt-market.us. And it's titled, Leftists Aren't Capable of Surviving Economic Collapse. And he explains why. Now this I, I hope this is clear. This is not something where he's fantasizing, yeah, they're all going to die by, you know, the droves here. Um, He's pointing out some very harsh realities. But I think that uh, the lesson here is you have the opportunity to be prepared regardless of where you see yourself on the political spectrum. If you're not taking advantage of that opportunity, you're missing a really important window of opportunity that will not always be open. So maybe it's time to stop thinking about it and maybe get to work acting on, you know, bettering your position and increasing your self-reliance. One of the things that Brandon Smith points out is that the left are anti-preparedness. He says the political left has spent the better part of the past 15 years demonizing the concept of preparedness as a tinfoil hat philosophy for what they call right-wing extremists. They've set themselves up for complete failure by refusing to acknowledge the practicality of prepping just so they can attack their political opponents. And the stupidity of it is truly mind-boggling. Now, there are some indications that the COVID lockdowns may have shocked a small number of them out of their foolishness. It's hard to deny the threat of economic collapse when the beginnings of collapse are right in front of your face. That said, prepping is not the only requirement for survival, and progressives buying a few months of food and some guns is not going to save them. He says also the leftists have an aversion to hardship, The vast majority of people that argue in favor of an expanding welfare state are on the left. And he says, while conservatives support individual charity for those that deserve it, leftists believe that people need to be forced by government to provide and pay for others who may not deserve it. This idea is, or ideal rather, is driven by their desire to avoid hardship. He says, I find that leftists often have delusions of grandeur. They assume that they are destined for great things, that they are smarter than the rest of us, and that work or sacrifice are problems relegated to the rural peasants in flyover country. Their vision of work is a daycare, a college campus, a place to socialize, find comfort, and self-identity, to do the the minimal amount of labor required and then collect a paycheck. Look how leftist-dominated Twitter was being operated a few months ago. It wasn't a workplace. It was a day spa for lunatics. These kinds of people are not equipped to endure the back-breaking struggle necessary to build a survivable environment. They wouldn't know where to begin. When confronted with hard times, the leftists don't ask, how can I fix this problem and improve my situation? Instead, they ask, who is to blame for my misery and how can I make them pay? Next, he points out, leftists have no practical skill sets. The avoidance of technical skill sets is a real problem for progressives. There are a handful of people on the left that engage in micro-farming and other basic skills as a form of activism. But they're few, and their methods are limited by their ideology. As noted above, he says leftists believe themselves to be too valuable to be wasted on production. Rather, they see themselves as management, the people in charge of the people that do the manual labor. Now, a person could get by on that kind of thinking in a first-world environment where office jobs, tech jobs, government jobs, and social work is the norm. But in a collapsed environment, there are no management positions, there are no office workers, there are no elementary school teachers, there are no trust and safety advisors, there are no platform moderators, and there are no bureaucrats. You either have a valued knowledge set that can be traded, or you have nothing. You can either produce necessities for yourself, or you can't. The development of the information age and the data-driven economy of first world nations has made matters worse by convincing people that data is a currency. This is a concept that leftists in particular adore because they think labor will become a thing of the past. They'll only need their brain and a laptop to provide everything they need. It's a delusion. The metaverse is a facade, it's a con, and there will always be a need for humans to dig in the dirt, to forage and hunt, to farm and to build with their own hands. As the economy derails further, progressives are going to realize this too late. Next, he says leftists rely on government to fix their problems. So if the idea of taking matters into your own hands is abhorrent to you, well, you might be a leftist. Leftists view individual action during a crisis as almost criminal. It's important to them that the correct authorities, with the correct permissions, handle any dangerous situation. Leftists love to defer to the experts because this takes the responsibility out of their hands, along with the blame should anything go wrong. But what happens when government is not functional enough to save the day? What happens when inflation or supply chains or personnel shortages make it impossible for government officials to help? What happens when government officials don't want to help? What happens when they are corrupt and they want to see you suffer? Leftists rarely consider such possibilities. For them, the idea that government could break down, that the grid could break down, that the rule of law could break down, is a conspiracy theory. It's only happened hundreds of times around the world in modern history, but because they've never experienced the threat personally, they think it's impossible these are the kinds of people that die very quickly during collapse. Also, he points out that leftists value feelings over reason. The root foundation of leftist ideology is that everything is relative according to one's personal feelings. That is to say, they believe that their feelings shape their reality and that their truth is the only truth that matters. Now, there are some subjective truths that are near universal, which is why moral conscience is a thing that exists in every culture in the world. That said... Personal ideals are still subject to the forces of nature. So, you can't pretend that you're not starving when you are starving. You cannot pretend that you're not dehydrated when you are desperately thirsty. You cannot feel your way out of a crisis. The crisis is not subject to your fantasies. The crisis will step on your throat and teach you otherwise. So, at bottom, their feelings do not matter, they are irrelevant. And this is a lesson that leftists will learn as the system begins to, or continues rather, to degrade. They can cry and scream and wail and make all the demands they want for fairness and equity and welfare. But in the end, they will face the clarity of self-reliance or they will face the ferryman. Now he says, it's not my purpose here to revel in the erasure of the political left. I am only pointing out that modern leftist ideology is the product of an extremely safe and controlled environment where people have the privilege to engage in frivolity. They think they want deconstruction. They think they want chaos as a means to break the system and rebuild it in their image. But what they don't realize is that if they get what they want, most of them will die in the process and will not be around to see their naive utopia come to fruition. Does that seem a little harsh? Well, there, are, there is such a thing as harsh truths. And this is one of them. And like like Brandon Smith... I don't take any uh, delight in the idea of, oh, goody, they're all going to suffer and maybe a bunch of them are going to die. I think that's a tragedy that, that I can't even begin to comprehend. And I say that from the standpoint because I do believe, leftist or not, these are children of God. They may be misguided in whatever ideology they've attached themselves to, but that doesn't change the fact they're human beings. I do not like to see human beings suffer. Even those who deserve it, it's still a tragedy. But... The bigger lesson here is that you and I, regardless of where we are on the political spectrum, have the opportunity right now during this relative window of peace to get ourselves squared away, to learn useful skills, to uh, lay up some stores for a rainy day, so to speak. And above all, to build the relationships because you're not going to loan Wolf McQuaid your way through the coming challenges. Find the people you trust. I would start with family. That's really where it begins. This is the best shelter you can find in a storm. Patch up the relationships that need to be patched up, swallow your pride if necessary, and mend those fences. Because there's going to come a point where the time for preparation is done and the crisis will be fully upon us. And at that point, we will sort out the prepared from the unprepared. And I think it's going to be a pretty sad day for all of us. So let's do what we can to get ourselves squared away and bring along anyone else who will join us.
0: This is the Brian Hyde show. This is the Brian
1: Hyde show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout-out here for MonticelloCollege.org as well as LifesavingFood.com. These are two of my sponsors, wonderful sponsors at that. I would encourage you, get acquainted with them. If there's something they have that you could put to use, or well, consider doing business with them. I've got handy links provided in my show notes at TheBrianHydeShow.com. All right. Well, if you if you haven't, uh, you know, contemplated killing yourself after the last couple of segments, first of all, thanks for hanging with me. Look, I I get it. This is this is a difficult and somewhat scary topic for a lot of people, myself included. I have to take a break every so often and just, "Oh man, this is this is becoming overwhelming." But again, reality is not subject to our wishes. In fact, I, I don't remember who said it, but the idea is reality is everything that remains when you wish it were otherwise. And there's going to come a point where the reality is simply going to be undeniable. So my goal is to get those who are willing to, to listen and to act to, to get themselves in the best position they can before the real challenges are on us. And I believe that this is not just, oh man, we're all going to be staggering around in rags and you know suffering because it's such a horrible life. I really believe what we're being handed is an opportunity to rise to the occasion of becoming the best possible version of ourselves. Now, the the bad news is that usually comes through, you know, hardship. That comes through being tested. That comes through being refined. But it's our turn. You know, this happens every few generations. Somebody is required to do some pretty heavy lifting, I think the World War II generation was probably the last one that had to endure something like this. Well, look around you. Where is that World War II generation today? It's almost completely gone. And so in that cycle of history, we are at the point where we are facing not just, you know, domestic crisis, but worldwide global crises of, you know, many different shapes and forms. I think our turn is here. And I'll go back to something Brandon Smith mentioned, and that is the mental toughness required to, to do this. It's not something you're going to develop in the moment, just like you don't develop calluses in the moment. You go out there and start working with a shovel one day, you're going to quickly find out. If you, if you don't do that kind of work on a regular basis, if you have nice soft hands like I do, um, the blisters come quickly, and it's really unpleasant. But mentally, we need to be building some calluses because, uh, you know, as Boston Tea Party put it, this is the time to, to become rugged this is the time to get fit. This is the time to become accustomed to uh, to difficult things, denying yourself comfort every so often, just to show you can do this. And I know it's indelicate, but he says, because in, in his words, when the moment arrives, it's going to be too late to grow a penis at that time. Sorry, that's a terribly sexist thing to say, but you get the point that he's trying to say. All right, let's move on to uh, another topic here. Um, oh, this one just kind of blows my mind. Um, I thought perhaps, you know, the pressure was off the unvaccinated. A year ago, it was still pretty ugly, right? You get the jab or you lose your job kind of stuff. The unvaccinated are responsible for the spread of COVID throughout society. And that has calmed a lot over the last year. And I, for one, have been very grateful being unvaccinated. I'm one of those people who just, I'm, I'm not going to knuckle under to that kind of pressure. And by the way, I'm not condemning those who, for whatever reason, did choose to, to get the jab. There were a lot of folks who were forced into it against their will. Um, I have yet to talk to anybody who was was uh, coerced into it who's like, yeah, that was a good thing. I'm glad I did it. Most of them have said, no, I, I, I did I did it because I had to, but I'm not going to get the boosters. I'm, I'm not going to continue on with this, oh, now it's time to go and get another one. But it looks like the uh, the effort to ramp up pressure on the unvaccinated, it's starting up again. It's going to be curious to see where this leads. This is a new study. I'm reading about this on zerohedge.com. A new study claims unvaccinated people more likely to be reckless and cause traffic accidents. Do you see the connection they're trying to make here? Why, if they're reckless enough and not doing what they're told when someone told them to get the jab, they probably drive with both feet on the steering wheel 85 miles an hour through a school zone while they're throwing beer cans out the sunroof or something along those lines. This is uh, members of the Timurti Faculty of Medicine at Toronto University in Canada, making the bizarre claim that being unvaccinated is an indicator of psychological risk-taking and recklessness. Now, the authors include Dr. Uh, Ronald A. Redelmeyer, Jonathan Wang, and Diva, oh, this is going to be a fun name, Thurichuvelvum, Thurachu, Thurachelvum. sorry, that took... That took more than a couple running starts. But they argue that data involving traffic accidents in which one or more people are admitted to the hospital for injuries shows a correlation between vaccination status and car wrecks. Now, not surprisingly, their data sources involved in the study strongly support the original premise. But the first question we need to ask is, why in the world would anyone engage in such a study in the first place? The notion is out of left field, and it requires a couple of initial assumptions that unvaccinated people are a monolithic group that share the same psychological motivators and that those motivators are dangerous does that not seem to be the picture that they're they're uh, painting here without this rather biased assumption it's unlikely that this group of doctors or scientists would dream up the study in the first place of course strange premises are not necessarily proof of rigged conclusions so let's get into the motivations The authors of the study are all members of the University of Toronto, Temerty Faculty, and the Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre. This faculty and section of the university was funded by a $250 million grant from James C. Temerty and the Temerty Foundation in 2020. That was the single largest gift in Canadian history. And the money was designated to various areas of the university, but a large portion went directly into COVID-19 research projects. So, who is James Temerty? Well, he's a Ukrainian-born citizen of Canada and founder of Northland Power, but his nonprofit foundation appears to be his primary focus. Oh, by the way, he's also on the advisory board of the Atlantic Council. That's a globalist think tank out of Washington, D.C., with many of the same ideological aims promoted by the World Economic Forum. In fact, members of the Atlantic Council are often invited to speak at World Economic Forum functions, and none other than Klaus Schwab was the very first recipient of the Atlantic Council's Global Citizen Award, several years ago. So, the Atlantic Council Advisory Board is a long list of global elites and corporate heads. The institution also had previous connections to Charles Koch, though this re- relationship has apparently ended. Now, does anyone in the vaccine industry and Big Pharma have a close relationship with the Atlantic Council? Well, of course, Albert Borla, the chairman and CEO of Pfizer, Borla is often invited to speak at Atlantic Council events and was awarded their Global Citizen of the Year or Global Citizen Award just last year. So as many people are now aware, the methodology of globalist think tanks is to use philanthropy, large sums of tax-deductible money as a means to control society by influencing or corrupting the top 10% in the professional class or academic class. If you can buy the people who run the colleges, buy the people in suits and buy the people in lab coats, well, then you can own the narrative and control the other 90% of people who simply defer to the experts without doing their own research. Well, the Temerty Foundation clearly has a high level of influence over the University of Toronto and their medical wing, and James Temerty is on the advisory board of a globalist institution that's aggressively supported the Pfizer narrative on COVID mandates and vaccination. In other words, any COVID study funded by members of the Atlantic Council should immediately be treated as suspect. But what about the science itself? How did the Temerty faculty come to the conclusion that lack of COVID vaccination indicates reckless behavior? Where did they get the vaccination data? Where did they get the traffic data? How did they tie it all together? Well, they claim to have developed their reference points from encrypted identifiers from official government registries. In other words, they exploited private medical data tracked by the Canadian government. By cross-referencing vaccination status with severe traffic accidents, the group asserts that the unvaccinated are 72% more likely to harm themselves or others in the process of a car wreck. Now, there are two problems immediately evident from a scientific standpoint. One, the group admits a large portion, a much larger portion of people who are unvaccinated were younger, ages 18 to 39. Well, that makes almost perfect sense because the vast majority of young people are at nearly zero risk of mortality from a COVID infection. But beyond that, they're also statistically more likely to get into car accidents by virtue of age, inexperience, and reckless behavior. I think insurance companies understand this. Two, another problem with the study is the complete lack of peer review and the inability for independent analysis of their core data. The group claims to have used encrypted government medical data that's unavailable to the public, right? So, sorry, you can't see it. That's pretty convenient. So, where does this lead Do we punish the unvaccinated by institutionalizing vaccine status into every aspect of life, including your car insurance, your health insurance, your life insurance, home insurance, business insurance, etc.? Another point of leverage might be credit. Many bank loans are based on the concept of low risk, but if you're unvaccinated and labeled high risk in life and in finances, you could be rejected for future access to funds. The basic strategy is this. Use high costs to force the unvaccinated into compliance and slowly whittle the public down. These people won't give up easily, and since the direct route of medical tyranny has failed, they're deciding to use indirect chicanery to get what they want. I know, it may sound like a conspiracy theory to some, but this actually makes sense to me. And I think it's sick and wrong, but I think it's very likely true. This...
0: Is the Brian Hyde Show. This is the Brian
1: Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Man, I am getting a lot off my chest today. I wasn't kidding when I said this is like a therapy session for me. So, where do I send the check, right? I'm, I'm lying there on your couch. You're my psychiatrist. What's this? You're prescribing uh, medications? No, no, no. I I don't. I'm just wanted. I just want to get this off my chest. I've got three articles that I want to point you toward, and again, these are in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Take a look at them if you choose. What you do with this information is up to you. But I thought these were interesting articles in and of themselves. Uh, the recently passed Respect for Marriage Act. I I can't think of a more Orwellian name. And I I mean this I, really most government acts. Whatever the name says, usually it is directly the opposite of what the act will accomplish. The Patriot Act really was uh, the police state act. Meaning that we will go after patriots because, uh, you know, national security. There are other examples, but in this case, respect for marriage was uh, really a celebration of um, codifying the removal of the traditional form of marriage from the public lexicon and and, and turning it into some government uh, frankenstein monster of whatever grouping government says is legit and the celebration which included a big drag queen show at the white house uh, that looks a lot more like retaliation by woke activists than something actually protecting a foundational institution now, i know there was a couple of nods here well yes you know and we'll respect religious freedom time will tell but uh, based on the escalation of both the perversity and the in your face activism including targeting children with uh, with a lot of this uh, transgender activist uh, you know the the drag queen shows and stuff for kids there how long do you really think that they're going to respect religious freedom and these churches that say well for our, for all uh, intents and purposes we are not going to change our definition of marriage, which we believe was ordained by God between man and woman, and, you know, that's that. My bet is it doesn't last very long. I think we'll, we'll see another escalation, and I don't know what it's going to be. We strip all the churches of their tax-exempt status, and it's, you know, some people say, well, they should be stripped of their tax-exempt status, and I, I don't know where this is coming from, at least from the standpoint of, of people who, uh, why, why don't they default to the idea of all of us, should be tax-exempt. All of us should be more like churches and have tax-exempt status. But no, 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 we want the misery spread equally, which seems to me to be one of the hallmarks of collectivism in one of its various forms. So keep an eye on it. Got a great article here from Trevor Thomas. And, and by the way, that, that whole Respect for Marriage Act, I know you're considered a bad person. If you don't embrace that as why it's the natural evolution of goodness and everything that's right in America... Trevor says it's also a test of sorts for who will embrace the truth and who will reject the truth based on popular opinion, based on, you know, public opinion pressure. You risk being called names. You risk being, you know, labeled as something, you know, ugly for simply saying, I can't get on board with that. This is a, this is kind of a sifting of the wheat from the tares. And I, I can't tell you, well, this is the side you need to come down on. All I can say is be aware that the sifting is going on. And if you're a person for whom truth is really a priority, just know you're going to be tested on that. And I'd like you, I hope I have the strength to, to stand for the truth no matter what. Again, this is where building up those calluses comes in handy. The more you do it, the more you practice it, the more you get used to it, the thicker your skin becomes just something to consider. All right, another one. This is a, an article from John Miltimore, Child Services Telling a Mother Her Children Can't Play Outside by Themselves. I want you to read the story and check it out for yourself and just, you know, you can draw your own conclusions. I, and I know I sound like I'm waxing nostalgic. Ah, oh, well, back in my day, we just turned loose and we could go do whatever we wanted. We didn't quite have carte blanche to where we could just do anything we wanted, but we did have an immense amount of freedom. I mean, in our family, the tradition was when you turn eight years old, you are now old enough that uh, you can have a bicycle. And so that was that was the eight year old birthday gift in our family. And it was a big freaking deal, man. I still remember walking in the house and there was a shiny red Schwinn Stingray. And it, that was the most magnificent bike. I mean, it was just heaven. And it was the norm. For my parents to let me and my friends, you know, jump on our bikes and go exploring all around our um, East Bench, uh, Salt Lake, you know, holiday area neighborhood. Uh, we, I look at that and I drive through those neighborhoods now and I'm like, holy crap. I would never let my kid, I wouldn't let my teenage kids safely ride through there because I'm, I'd be worried about them. But we did. We had a lot of freedom. And now you've got people saying, well, you know, the state telling mothers, you can't let your children play outside by themselves. That may seem reasonable to some, but you have to ask the direction that it's taking us. Where exactly does that lead? And I can't tell you exactly where it ends up, but I don't, think I, I don't think I want to go there. And it also is a great illustration of just how much our society has changed. And I would argue not for the better, at least by that indication. All right, finally, great article from offguardian.org. I know we're all keeping an eye on the battle over free speech and Twitter, you know, of course, is front and center. Well, you know, this is, is no longer a safe place for collectivist ideology. Elton John is leaving and others, I've I got to get out of here. This place is terrible. Well, because they're encountering viewpoints that uh, they don't want to encounter. But it was okay when Twitter was, you know, run by 99%, uh, you know, uh, leftist people and actively suppressing conservative points of view. Well, that's a good thing. I don't know that, that, that's within my comfort zone. Not very intellectually consistent or honest, but that's what was happening. But now, we're seeing the battle over free speech morphing into something a little bit more concerning. And that is, we're seeing attempts to equate free speech with violence. And it's being blamed for mass shootings and so forth. This article from offguardian.org says this past month has seen an influx of news stories, all somehow featuring the supposed negative effects of online misinformation, hate speech, and or conspiracy theories. In New Zealand, a few days ago, one couple had their baby placed in care of a hospital after refusing to approve a surgical procedure unless they could be sure their child would receive unvaccinated blood transfusions. And the position was blamed on the parents' position was blamed on consuming misinformation and conspiracy theories. And if you saw the video, I mean the police came into the hospital and took that infant from his mother's arms with the threat of, you know, if you try anything, we will use violence against you. Uh, it's probably the most enraging video I have seen in a long time. There's been some pretty outrageous stuff in the last couple of years, but I, I just I felt sick after watching it. By the way, The government relented and the child was, I think, returned to his parents. But certainly the the, the best part was he was not forced to accept, you know, vaccinated blood as part of his surgical procedure. But the question I don't see enough people asking is, how the hell did it get to that point in the first place? And for that, I don't have any easy answers. And the article then goes on to say, three weeks ago in Colorado Springs, there was a reported mass shooting at a gay bar. And the suspect, Anderson Lee Aldrich, who was, of course, known to the FBI, allegedly killed five and wounded 18. But within days, a news report co-authored by several so-called civil rights groups was calling on Biden to change his strategy on domestic terrorism. At the Club Q shooting congressional hearings this week, apart from the predictable urges to act on guns, witnesses have been testifying that harmful rhetoric was to blame for the shooting and hate speech turns into violence. Papers are publishing opinion pieces citing the dangers of too much free speech. And just a couple of days ago in Australia, a shooting took place in Queensland where two police officers and one neighbor were killed, allegedly shot by three suspects who were then shot and killed by tactical police units. Now, the deceased suspects were immediately linked to conspiracy websites. And Australian politicians are already talking about new laws to draw out uh, this poison out of our nation and to combat misinformation. This is a quote from one of those articles. The spread of disinformation on the internet and the way that in, in which that infects people's minds and changes their whole persona, their whole perspective, and causes them to commit or at least contributes to them committing extreme acts, it should be of concern to any right-thinking Australian. Gee, I wonder where that could lead. So it leaves us with some questions here. Uh, You know, in the background of all these stories, first of all, is Elon Musk's reforming of Twitter being blamed for the increase or the supposed increase in hate speech. And it's not hard to see where this wind is blowing. It seems possibly in the wake of the stuttering failure of the COVID narrative that the party are turning their crosshairs on the platforms that stalled the pandemic so they can run unopposed next time. But what do you think? Is free speech too dangerous to exist? What will Biden's next moves on domestic terrorism look like? Will Australia introduce new legislation to deal with misinformation? Here's another good one. Are these incidents genuine or are they false flags? And this is kind of an unpopular question, but it still needs to be asked. Is Elon Musk really championing free speech or setting us up for the fall? Kind of worthwhile questions to be asking, even if they're uncomfortable. But hey, that's the price of... uh, Following the truth, it's going to take you some places that are decidedly uncomfortable. I just comfort myself with the fact that uh, at least I'm in good company. This is The Brian Hyde Show.